It's December, 1882. In Knox County, Ohio, the wind blows a violent storm and icy rain slashes against the wet roads. At the summit of a steep hill stands a small, tumble-down house. It's just one and a half stories high and is plain and unpainted. A chipped fence surrounds its weathered exterior. The house belongs to Marion Stillwell. He's an elderly man who lives alone, although he's often visited by his son and daughter-in-law. Inside Marion's home, in a large drafty room, a woman lies curled up on a bed. A roaring log fire has been lit for her, and its flames dance dangerously in the grate as the wind howls down the chimney. The woman is weak and frail. Her bony hands shine an unhealthy crimson as her skin burns with sickness and infection. Her greasy brown hair hangs in straggles from her sweaty head, and her pale face is ghostly white in the bright glow of the fire. The woman's name is Emma Stillwell. She's Marion's daughter-in-law, but at just 30 years old, Emma is on her deathbed. Doctors recently diagnosed her with tuberculosis and have encouraged her family and friends to say their goodbyes. Emma's husband, J.V. Stillwell, has returned from his work on the Chicago railroads to be with her in her final days. Despite her frailty, Emma is determined to resist sleep. She has something important to tell her husband, a dark secret she has lived with for six long years. Emma beckons Jay Stillwell closer to her bedside. Their faces are almost touching, and he can perhaps feel his wife's hot breath upon his cheek. Using all of her remaining strength to speak in a rasping, rattling whisper, Emma confesses her terrible truth. She reveals that throughout her short life, she's been involved in multiple murders. She's killed family members, total strangers, and even an innocent baby. Just months before she was struck down by illness, Emma was even planning another murder. She wanted to kill her husband. Jay Stillwell perhaps considers the possibility that in her weakened state, Emma's mind is playing tricks on her. She could be spinning a far-fetched story that has no relevance to her own life. But then again, what if Emma's telling the truth? If her words are honest, then this frail, dying woman laying in front of him is in fact a serial killer. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chest. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Emma Stillwell. It's about a woman who murdered for money and her sinister schemes which killed three innocent people. It's about a family who had no regard for human life, the abhorrent crimes for which no one ever suspected them of, and an unsuspecting husband who learned of his wife's darkest secrets through the chilling words she spoke as she lay dying. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this 
is Deathbed Confessions. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently capella.edu In December 1882, 30-year-old Emma Stilwell confessed to committing a series of murders. While on her deathbed, she explained to her husband and father-in-law the chilling details of her criminal life and took them through the events surrounding her killings. To set the scene of murder number one, Emma transported listeners back to her first wedding day, 15 years earlier. It's 1868, and in the town of Maryville, Missouri, friends and family gather around to celebrate the wedding of Emma and Benjamin Swigert. Emma is just 15 years old when she leaves her family home and begins her new life as a devoted wife. Her husband, Benjamin Swigert, is a respected local shoemaker and happens to be exceptionally wealthy. He boasts a total of $1,000 in savings, as well as two houses, and shares in eight profitable businesses. It's perhaps this extensive wealth and the promise of lifelong financial stability which has tempted the young Emma into this union. Shortly after their wedding, the couple move into a modest house in Maryville, where they're frequently visited by family members, in particular, Emma's mother, Miss Horde, and her brother, Chester. The two were understandably protective over the teenage Emma, and perhaps hope that their visits will provide support as she navigates the challenges of marriage. As the years pass, Emma settles into her new life. She gives birth to two healthy children and devotes her time to looking after them. Living in a small, friendly neighborhood with her growing family and no financial restraints or worries, Emma seems to be surrounded by happiness. However, there is one issue the young mother cannot ignore. Her husband is an alcoholic. Swigert spends most of his evenings and weekends at the local pub, drinking until he can barely stand or even remember his own name. He arrives home later every night, drunk, loud, and aggressive. It's possible that Emma was aware of his addiction before they married and simply felt she had no choice but to accept it. However, now, with two young children running around the house, his alcoholism has no place in their lives. It's a danger to his wife, his children, and even himself. Something has got to change. 
Nine long years pass, and by 1877, Emma is growing desperate. She longs to escape from her failing marriage and drunken husband, but sadly, her options are limited. In 19th century America, legally separating from one spouse is virtually impossible. A state judge or governor can grant a divorce in extremely unique circumstances. But the legal fees are high and there's no guarantee that the separation will be granted. What's more, women who leave their husbands tend to become social pariahs. They're seen as suspicious individuals who voluntarily split up their family. This view is rife in small Midwest towns such as Maryville. As a result, many unhappy partners are forced to stay in their disastrous marriages. When Emma's mother, Ms. Hoard, hears about her daughter's troubling situation, she proposes a disturbing solution. One which would bypass divorce and make Emma a wealthy widow. Murder. Benjamin Swigert's death would free Emma from their failed marriage without hurting her own reputation. She'd then be able to remarry and find her children a more suitable father. She'd also be entitled to all of her husband's extensive wealth, his $1,000 in savings, multiple properties, and business shares. But the idea is ludicrous. Killing Swigert would be a crime punishable by death and would break every law of society. Murder cannot be the solution. Or can it? Over the next few months, the plan to murder Benjamin Swigert steadily develops. All three family members decide to take part, Emma, her brother Chester, and their mother. They hope that once Swigert is out of the picture, 24-year-old Emma will get to start her life afresh. She'll also be financially independent as soon as she cashes in all of her husband's riches. By March of 1877, the sinister plot is complete and the three individuals are ready to strike in what will be their first act of murder. It's an early spring evening in March 1877, and as usual, the drunken Benjamin Swigert stumbles home from the pub. His vision is perhaps blurry from the alcohol, and he sways in the darkness with each heavy step. After unlocking the front door to his home, Swigert makes his way into the kitchen. But then, suddenly, someone jumps on him. It's Chester Horde. Chester attacks Swigert and knocks him over with a series of powerful punches. He holds him down on the floor, pressing his face into the cold ground until Swigert's body falls still, too exhausted to fight back. Then, Emma enters the scene. Heaving an axe over her shoulders, she strikes her defenseless husband on the back of his head, piercing his skull as the sharp blade makes contact. She hits him again and again until his skull cracks and his body stops moving. Benjamin Swigert is dead. With the help of their mother, who's been waiting in the next room, Emma and Chester drag Swigert's lifeless body through the house. They lay him down and position him on his bed, making it look as though he's asleep. But with dark bruises already forming around his skull and face, 
and blood dripping from the wounds on his head, no one can mistake the fact that Benjamin Swigert has been brutally murdered. In the dead of the night, just minutes after committing the crime, Emma wakes up her sleeping children and drags them to a neighbor's house. How she explains this decision to her children or neighbor is anyone's guess. But in the hours that follow, this sudden move from her home will leave a lot of room for suspicion. As a well-known shoemaker in Maryville, it doesn't take long for people to notice Benjamin Swigert's absence. Colleagues perhaps miss him at work and pub owners possibly expect his daily visit. There's also a chance that some of the neighbors overheard the deadly scuffle between Chester, Emma, and Swigger during the night and alerted police. In any case, officers arrive at Swigger's house the following morning. Growing suspicious when they find no one home, they break through the front door and force themselves inside. It's here where they discover the dead body of Benjamin Swigert. After establishing that his death is a homicide, police set about finding the killer. And it doesn't take them long to fit the pieces together. They discover that Emma and her children had spent the night at a neighbor's, a fact which surely can't be a coincidence. Perhaps she fled her home in an attempt to give herself an alibi. To the police, it seems obvious that Emma was somehow involved in the murder of her husband. Emma is arrested the same day. Sometime later, Chester and Miss Hoard are also brought into custody, although it's not known how police suspected their involvement. As for Emma's two children, it's unclear what happens to them after this point. In the spring of 1877, Emma, Chester, and Miss Hoard go on trial for the murder of Benjamin Swigert. All three claim innocence. Emma perhaps defends her case by explaining her husband's alcoholism. In his drunken state, it would have been easy to fall over or injure himself by accident. However, the prosecution believes otherwise and builds a strong case to prove Emma's guilt. Firstly, they point out Emma's sudden move to her neighbor's house. Why did she leave her own home in the dead of the night? Her departure suggests she knew something about the murder. Next, the prosecution explains that all three individuals had a powerful motive money. As Swigert's next of kin, Emma is in line to inherit his vast fortune and would presumably share this money with her family. Finally, adding to the hefty evidence against them is the fact that the trio are the only suspects for the crime. No one else has come forward with a confession or alternate theory about Swigert's death. It seems likely that the trio will be found guilty of murder and sentenced to death. But miraculously, the judge doesn't agree with the charges put against the defendants. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Despite the injuries which prove beyond a doubt that Benjamin Swigert was murdered, the judge rules that Swigert's death was an accident. He believes that a different version of events took place. Perhaps influenced by the story Emma tells, the judge states that Swigert tripped while he was heavily inebriated and that the subsequent falls somehow resulted in his death. Emma, Chester, and Miss Horde are all pronounced innocent. You'd think that this close brush with justice would scare the three criminals and cause them to lie low from then on. However, for the family of killers, this is just the beginning. Soon they'll hatch a second sinister plot to get rich quick. It's the summer of 1877. Months have passed since the murder of Benjamin Swigert, and Emma, Chester, and Miss Horde have left their hometown. Using the inheritance from her late husband, Emma has purchased a large property not too far from Maryville and transformed it into a successful boarding house. She runs the facility with her mother and brother. For the trio, life at the boarding house is exciting. It's a chance to start afresh in a place where no one knows their names or the criminal convictions they were suspected of. They're kept busy with a constant stream of travelers passing through their doors. They meet a variety of people, hearing intriguing stories about different places and lifestyles, and even make new friends. But not only are many of their guests fascinating, some also happen to be very rich. One gentleman we'll call John catches their eyes. As a regular visitor to the boarding house, they believe he's exceptionally wealthy. And so Emma, Chester, and Miss Horde plan their next robbery. It's the summer of 1877, and night has set around the boarding house. John sleeps peacefully in his room. Comfortable in the familiar inn, and warmed by the evening breeze wafting through his windows. He doesn't notice Emma and Chester sneak into his room, and has no idea that they're carrying a hammer. As Emma and Chester approach the traveler, one of them lifts the hammer and strikes it against the sleeping man's head. They swing it numerous times into his skull, eventually breaking it as they beat him to death. Then, once his body is lifeless, the search for his fortune begins. Joined by Miss Horde, the murderous trio frantically forage through his room. They tear apart his cases, dive into his coat pockets, and hunt through any possessions they can find. But all of their efforts are fruitless. It turns out that John was not wealthy at all, or at least didn't carry large sums of money or valuable items with him. They retreat with a pitiful handful of pennies. They are no better off than they were before the murder. Having learned from their scrape with the law a few months ago, Emma, Chester, and Miss Horde act quickly. If someone discovers the dead body on their property, 
they'll certainly become prime suspects in another murder investigation. And with one homicide charge only recently put behind them, it's unlikely that they'll escape the death penalty a second time. So Emma, Chester, and Miss Horde creep out of the boarding house into the dark summer's night, heaving John's corpse with them. They soon find a ravine hidden by a thick woodland. It's far away from roads or other houses, so no one will discover the body here. They throw it into the deep pit and watch it fall away from them into the darkness. John's body isn't found for another year. And by then, his remains are so badly decomposed that no one can identify him or determine his cause of death. For the second time in one year, Emma, Chester, and Miss Horde have gotten away with murder. It's now January 1878. Six months have passed since the murder of the border, and life for 26-year-old Emma has changed yet again. She's now married to a man called J.V. Stillwell, a hard-working brakeman who spends long shifts on the Kansas City and St. Joe railroads. Stillwell's job has earned him a modest amount of wealth, and he has a respectable $500 in savings, about the equivalent of an entire year's wages. It's not quite the impressive sum Emma enjoyed with her first husband, but it's certainly enough to allow them a comfortable life. Emma and her new husband move all over the country together. They spend a brief amount of time in Rockport, Missouri, before moving 600 miles north to Rulo in Nebraska. While Emma and Stillwell are state hopping, it's not clear what happens to her mother and brother. It's possible that they stay in Missouri running the family's boarding house. In March 1879, a now 27-year-old Emma Stillwell gives birth to a baby girl and then another daughter the following year. With two young children and a supportive husband, her life should be a happy one. But still, Emma isn't content. Gertie, her first baby with Stillwell, suffers from poor health. She's thin and weak, frequently plagued by various colds and viruses. Most mothers would take pity on a sick child and smother it with even more love. But Emma isn't a typical mother. She takes an intense dislike to Gertie and has no sympathy for the baby's prolonged suffering. So, once again, she turns to her own mother, Miss Horde, for advice. Between the two of them, a sinister idea develops one which is even more cruel and unforgivable than their previous crimes. It's May 11th, 1880. Jay Stilwell is working a long day on the Atchison and Nebraska railroads. His wife Emma and mother-in-law are at home, and he trusts that his beloved children are being looked after. But Stilwell is deeply mistaken. After feeding 14-month-old Gertie a warm tea made of peach leaves, Emma strangles her own child to death. Her mother, Miss Horde, calmly watches on as Emma commits her third murder. When Jay Stilwell returns home from work that night, he must be devastated to find out that his firstborn daughter has died. He'd be even more upset to discover that the baby's own mother, his wife, was her murderer. 
but Emma has a lie prepared for her husband's numerous questions. She tells Stilwell that Gertie died in her sleep from natural causes. Due to Gertie's relentless poor health, the story is believable, and Stilwell never suspects his 28-year-old wife of the crime. After the death of baby Gertie, life continues as normal for Emma and Jay Stilwell. They leave their Nebraska home in 1881 and move east to the city of Ottumwa, Iowa. As usual, Miss Horde is keen to spend time with her daughter. So in March of that year, she boards a train to Iowa. However, while Miss Horde is en route, a terrible railroad accident occurs. The carriages of the train are violently thrust onto their sides and the passengers are tossed around within. As she tries to scramble back onto her feet, Miss Horde tumbles and falls to the ground. While on the floor, a heavy stove disattaches from the carriage and crashes down on top of her. As the train crew and passengers wait for emergency services, Miss Hoare's body is slowly crushed under the weight of the stove. Miraculously, she survives the railroad accident and somehow makes it to her daughter's house. Although Miss Hoare is physically injured, her mind is astute as ever. And while staying with her daughter and son-in-law, she proposes another sinister plan for Emma. Miss Horde knows that Jay Stilwell is a reasonably wealthy man and has a sizable life insurance. If he were to die, this money would be handed straight to his next of kin, Emma Stilwell. So for the second time in her life, Emma schemes to kill her own husband. She and her mother make three separate attempts on his life, but each are unsuccessful. It's not known how they try to kill Jay Stilwell. Perhaps they hope to poison his food and drink or attack him while he's sleeping. Whatever their methods, they're extremely subtle as Stilwell never grows suspicious. But fortunately for Jay Stilwell, all plans to take his life are suddenly dropped. In July of 1881, just four months after the railroad accident, Miss Horde dies from her injuries. Emma does not carry out any more murder attempts. Without the presence of her mother, it's possible that Emma wants to give up her life of crime and live honestly with her husband. However, guilt is beginning to eat away at her. And when the 30-year-old woman gets struck down by illness, she's compelled to share her darkest truths. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV.
Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. It's December 16th, 1882, Middlebury, Ohio. Emma Stilwell has been staying with her father-in-law, Marion Stilwell, for a number of weeks. She's enjoyed spending time with him since losing her own mother. But just days ago, she was struck down by tuberculosis, and doctors fear she doesn't have long left to live. That's why her husband, J.V. Stilwell, has traveled from Iowa. He wants to be with his wife in her final days. However, not long after Stillwell's arrival, Emma's overcome by the urge to tell a horrific, chilling story. She confesses that she has killed three innocent people. Her first husband, a traveler, and her and Stillwell's baby daughter. As Stillwell stands at his wife's bedside, he's dumbstruck by what he's just heard. In disbelief, he calls for his father, Marion Stillwell, to come into the room. He wants another person to witness Emma's chilling story before she dies. Patiently, Marion listens as Emma weakly repeats her confession. She tells him exactly what she told her husband, making sure not to miss any details. Now it's Marion's turn to be horrified. He's spent the last few days caring for his sick daughter-in-law, and mourning the tragedy that she'll die at such a young age. He perhaps shudders at the thought that he's been sleeping just feet away from a serial killer, one who was cruel enough to kill her own baby daughter. Over the next few days, as Emma hangs on to life, her story spreads through the small county of Middlebury. Perhaps because of his familial duties as her father-in-law, Marion allows Emma to remain at his house. Here, she's visited by four of Marion's closest friends, who listen intently to her confession. Among these guests is a journalist from a newspaper called the Cincinnati Inquirer. From the moment he caught wind of Emma's thrilling tale, he's been determined to transform it into a headline story. The journalist listens attentively to every word that Emma speaks, from her early days as a teenage wife to her recent murder plots against her current husband. But one question continues to nag at him. Are her stories true? Marion Stilwell is determined to find out. He travels southwest to Cincinnati to speak with an attorney. The attorney he hires contacts police in Missouri who launch an investigation. They want to try and match each of Emma's reported murders to a killing that took place. Unfortunately, it's unclear if police ever find anything that proves foul play. As news of Emma's story spreads through the state, Marion and Jay Stilwell receive another surprise. On December 20th, Emma's brother, Chester Horde, writes directly to both men. In his letter to Marion, he states, Mr. Stilwell, if my poor sister is dead, let me know as soon as possible, for it worries me so much I cannot rest. Tell me what she said about me, or if she wanted me to do anything for the boys, or did she speak of me at all? 
his letter to Jay Stilwell is far more brief. He simply begs that there will be no hard feelings against him. These two letters instantly cast suspicion on Chester. He clearly suspected that his sister would confess to the family's crimes and knew that he too would be implicated. His hasty apology to Jay seems to be in reference to the failed attempts on his life. At this point, it's likely that Jay Stilwell is confused and conflicted about what to believe. Over the course of just a few days, he's found out that his dying wife is a murderer and her family spent months trying to kill him. However, Chester Hoard's letters are the last anyone ever hears of him. No one knows for sure if he's arrested or manages to escape justice yet again. It's January 3rd, 1883. The Cincinnati Enquirer has published its headline article about Emma Stilwell in a piece called A Confession, a modern Lucretia Borgia's fearful record. The title refers to the 16th century Italian noblewoman who was continually caught up in scandal. Borgia earned a reputation as a dangerous murderer due to the suspicious deaths of many of those around her. Throughout the article in the Cincinnati Enquirer, the journalist details Emma's shocking life. From her birth in Michigan in 1852, her deathbed confession just 30 years later, and all of the murders in between. Instantly, the story attracts widespread attention. All through Ohio, Emma Stilwell's name is whispered in hushed, fearful voices. People become obsessed and terrified by this mysterious woman who masqueraded as a loving mother, but was in fact a serial killer. It's believed that Emma Stilwell dies in January 1883. In her final hours, she's joined by a minister and a justice of the peace who perhaps hope to redeem her soul. Following the headlines of the Cincinnati Enquirer, the New York Times is intrigued by the story of Emma Stilwell. It publishes a piece in early 1883. The New York Times reconfirms the claims made by the Enquirer and explains that Emma even signed a statement confirming her guilt. However, there are several intriguing questions which both articles leave unanswered. Firstly, no one ever reveals what happened to Emma after she told her story on her deathbed. Was she arrested by police and finally charged with the three murders? Or did she die before justice could be served? What's more, the journalists don't confirm whether Emma's story was ever proven to be true. Although police in Missouri attempted to verify her claims, it's unclear whether they found any murder cases which matched. Chester Hoard's letters go some way in verifying the crimes, but his words wouldn't hold up in a courtroom as they'd be discredited as hearsay. Frustratingly, we may never know the answers to these questions. As witnesses, family members, and of course Emma herself, are all long gone. Next week on Deathbed Confessions. We meet Ted Conrad, a young man who takes his obsession with a movie a step too far. Conrad talks about emulating Steve McQueen's bank heist in the Thomas Crown Affair. Nobody believes him until one Friday in July 1969, when he shows everyone just how serious he is. 
Conrad swaps obscurity for a slot on America's Most Wanted. And so begins a decades-long battle to stay ahead of the law that will last right up until his deathbed. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Associate producer, Nicole Edmonds. Written by Nicole Edmonds. Supervising editor, Jane O. Sound design by Matias Torresole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.